So here's something new. We've just launched a beautifully designed On Being Discovery Engine. Plug in your favorite conversation or an interview that set your imagination off in new directions, and you'll be offered a constellation of kindred conversations to keep going deeper and farther. When I enter last week's interview with Daniel Kahneman, some of the threads the engine suggests include my earlier conversations with Mazarin Banaji and Ellen Langer. You can also explore hundreds of on-being shows by theme and create a playlist tailored to your curiosities. All of that at discover.onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Roshi Joan Halifax. Listen to our produced show with her wherever you find your podcasts, and as always, at onbeing.org. Krista Tippett, we look forward to your time with us. So, you know, um, this week for the first time I realized how many wonderful women in the world are named Joan. Just think about it. Joan Brown Campbell, Joan Halifax, Joan Chittister, another favorite. Mine too. Of mine <laughs> too. too. You know, you know what Joan means? No. This comes from Johan. It means God of grace. It does. I think that's what it means. I think you Christians might <laughs> well, it correct me, it but I think that's what it means. Yeah. Well, you know, this is the third day of this kind of experiment adventure of doing five interviews on stage for five days, and actually six. Um, I had did two on Monday. And a few, when Joan uh, and Maureen and I started talking, um, we talked with Krista Tippett and Friends is the title, and some of the people I'm interviewing, like, like Father Greg Boyle and Abdullah Dar, are friends I hadn't met yet. Um, <laughs> today and tomorrow, um, well, well, Joan Halifax and I have met, but only, we've only met with our voices. So this is the very first time I've met her um, as a body. And, and so, and I, but I've, so I, I, I talked to her um, for the first time back in 2005. And at that time, it was the very early days of the show. And as many of you will remember, there was this horrible uh, drama in our public life about uh, the Terry Schiavo case, the young woman whose family was divided over whether she should live or die. What I was struck by as I watched that, which was so anguishing and painful, was that we spent all this time talking about whether she should live, the right to life, and, and arguing on different sides of that. And then what we actually experienced together was a young woman dying. And, and there seemed to me to be an, you know, an assumption out there in a lot of our grappling and failing to grapple with this, that the absolute worst thing that could happen to her would be if she died, which of course is something that's going to happen to all of us. And, and after she in fact died, I, I wanted us to be able to talk about that, that part of life. So I went looking for somebody who could talk about this in a fresh and important way and completely transcend the politics of it. And I discovered Roshi Joan Halifax, who is a medical anthropologist and a renowned Buddhist teacher, and she had founded something called the Project uh, on Being with Dying. And she was kind of known as a midwife to dying people. Um, but what I learned, and what I've learned since, because I've continued to follow her, is that her wisdom about dying 
grows from her wisdom about living. Um, it's informed by Joan Halifax's other constantly evolving work on matters like compassion and stress and psychological and spiritual health on what she calls the edges of existence. Um, her wisdom has also been enriched and deepened by time she spent in cultures from the Sahara Desert to Mexico to Tibet to the hallways of American prisons. She's been quoted as saying, I just double-checked with her that she really said this, I am not a nice Buddhist. I'm more interested in a plain rice, get down in the street and get dirty Buddhism. <laughs> Roshi Joan Halifax lives today at the Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which she founded and where she is the abbess. Students from around the world come to Upaya to study the relationship between contemplative practice and social action. And so you see why we invited her for this week on it called Inspire, Commit, Act. So Joan, um, I've been reading things you've been writing the last few years since we spoke before, and uh, I loved uh, the title of this essay you wrote called Seeing Inside, mm -hmm. which I'm always mm -hmm. looking for fresh language for the important ordinary things we do. And that's really fresh language about spiritual life, contemplation, reflection. And you trace that experience of yours back to a period as a young girl, um, that the beginnings of that experience, when, you ha when a virus took away your eyesight. Mm. Is that for a couple of years? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Forgive me. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, that, that blessing that comes from a catastrophe has been a, a theme in my life. Um, first, it was uh, that accident, if you will, of life that brings you into a greatly compromised situation. And then the handicap becomes an asset. And the asset um, becomes your companion for your whole life. So um, when I was four, I woke up and um, I couldn't see. And I, I have a very distinct physical memory, which is the feeling of my hand against um, the wall of the hallway between my bedroom and my parents' bedroom. And it's just, you know, that sense of um, uh, the tactile world uh, suddenly becomes, it's about survival. And then I spent two years in this compromised situation, and um, it was a, a period of uh, discovery. Because you know when you're four, you don't really know any better. <laughs> it's all about discovery. So all of a sudden, the discovery field shifts from what normal discovery is for a four-year-old to discovering that I had an interior life. And I think that, um, Four-year-olds should have that chance, but not in that way, yeah. if you know what I'm saying. I think it's really... It's I think actually it's actually an amazing time of life. Four-year-olds yeah. are actually asking all the big questions. And then to have those questions uh, directed not so much toward the outside world, mm -hmm. but to realize that I could internally imagine the world, because I had been sighted. And that was... I mean, it was like, oh... You know, you took your dreams for granted. 
as a child. You took your ability to kind of imagine worlds through listening to your parents tell stories or read stories. But suddenly, another level of your life opens up when you recognize that actually um, you have a life that is act inside. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the essay I sent to Chris is one I wrote about two weeks ago. A little book is being produced of my photographs because when I got my vision back, um, my father and mother gave me a Kodak Brownie camera. Anybody <laughs> have a camera like that? Let's say rest in peace, you remember Kodak, that? Those, right? <laughs> those little boxes with a little gray sort of button on the side, the thumb button with the ridges. You remember that camera? And I started um, taking photographs. And it, it's been a, a lifelong joy for me. It's not being about being a photographer, but it's, it was about seeing inside. Mm. And then you've described discovering Buddhism and meditation in your 20s as another experience of yeah. learning to see inside then in a different way. You know, uh, Krista, to link it back to this uh, childhood opportunity I was given, um, <laughs> my uh, parents were... Um, you know, my father was a businessman. My mother was a kind of, she liked to play golf. And uh, I was raised in southern Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. So um, we spent the winters in southern Florida. And my parents hired this amazing Afro-American woman to take care of me. And this woman's mother had been a slave. And um, just tells you how old I am. <laughs> Uh, and um, she was free. Her name was Lilla Robinson. She had three daughters. All her daughters ended up being preachers. <laughs> so I think that her spirit also, I was like a daughter too. She definitely, her value and values and spirit got inside of me. But um, she really infused me, as did my parents, with a, a sense of social justice and of responsibility for this world. And I think that many people who are here today have that sensibility as well, that um, it's like Teilhard de Chardin writes about. You know, we, the more aware we become, the more responsible we recognize we are for what is and what will be. And we have to really take responsibility for our own lives, but also the life of this world. And this woman really gave me a big dose of that. Mm -hmm. So. Um, when I, I went to college at Sophie Newcomb in New Orleans, New Orleans, you might recognize the accent, New Orleans. <laughs> and um, uh, before that, I had been in a church school in Stanton, Virginia, and very kind of cloistered life. And suddenly, um, before me was the civil rights movement. And it just, it was like this, uh, uh, a, a kind of earthquake, internal earthquake where I knew that things, that the way that the person who had taken care of me when I was a child was treated, I knew it was, wasn't right exactly. And I knew her circumstances weren't right. It was, th there was something unjust about this. But when Dr. King and the whole movement became you know, so present for me once I was out of this wonderful but cloistered school, um, I couldn't turn away from it. And from that, of course, uh, then the civil rights movement led to the anti-war movement. 
And I, like so many people my age, I'm 70 in two weeks, so uh, you, you know how that can be. Yes, hello. <laughs> um, like so many people of the 60s, um, it was a time where um, we felt we really had an opportunity to engage, not only psychologically, but also socially, in terms of changing the global culture, not just our own national culture. And a lot of us got deeply involved in that world, and I was one of those people mm -hmm. among many thousands of others, and was very polarized. Um, you know, I lived in a right and wrong world. I had been actually brought up in a right and wrong world. So I lived in a right and wrong world. And it had actually caused me quite a bit of suffering because um, I was right and they were wrong. And then um, I read D.T. Suzuki. I went to a talk in New York by Alan Watts. Um, I walked in a peace march in 1966 uh, on Fifth Avenue with Thich Nhat Hanh, and I went, you know, I'm one of these. And it wasn't about religion. Hmm. It was about a philosophical perspective or a view. It was about a psychological perspective of, or how you can train the human heart and mind. And um, so that through all of my perambulations, uh, thread of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say it's awakening, it was more like a wake-up call of, I could actually tend my mind in a direction away from suffering or aversion or grasping desire, wanting, or just being dazed, numb. I can actually work with this directly and shift the co context of my mental experience and therefore how I am in the world. You know, that's so interesting. I mean, I've heard a lot of stories about the 60s and civil rights movement, and, and I've also talked to a lot of Buddhists who discovered Buddhism in the 60s and 70s, and I've never heard the two quite put together in that way. But I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh is somebody who Martin Luther King Jr. Nom, uh, proposed for a Nobel Peace Prize. Exactly. And he, was, he is Vietnamese, and he, his engaged Buddhism, even within Vietnam, was about not falling into that category right. of enemies. Right. And it's, you know, it's so easy to polarize. And we see it in terms of our global situation. Mm -hmm. And so even, you know, this upcoming election that we're dancing with is um, conditioning our children into an either-or world instead of us looking for a middle path between the pairs of opposites or actually creating a context of reconciliation. I think that's why, you know, some people feel, and I think justly, that um, the two-party system doesn't offer us enough alternatives. It's not enough complexity. We need more to, than two ways to look right. at something. Yeah, there's a, there's a sentence you wrote about discovering Buddhism. You, you talked about tasting stillness and knowing that it was medicine. Uh-huh. Explain you know, that. I, thank you for... Um, reading about me, not all interviewers do. Uh, so I'm, so, I'm so, so grateful. Of course, I don't remember writing that sentence. But, uh, do, you, do you think it's a good sentence? But actually, I, I think it's, uh, I could have said that. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, um, it is really true. I, I have a feeling that where we are, the Chautauqua, with all of this uh, um, 
richness that people experience also is uh, an opportunity for us to step away from the busyness and business of our lives. And of course, in Buddhism, um, uh, there are practices which are about actually stopping or cessation, um, about taking a backward step, which is not a very popular concept in our world, um, but also about coming to a place where the heart and mind are genuinely reflective, where we're able to perceive reality in an unfiltered way. And you have this beautiful lake uh, just to my right. And I imagine there are times when that lake is absolutely still, Lake Chautauqua is just completely still and reflects everything around it clearly. And there are times when the wind rustles the water and the images in the lake become fractured and you can't see things so clearly. So the practice, in essence, is about creating an internal experience of stillness where you're able to perceive in a very uh, vivid, clear, um, non-dual way. Hmm. Something else that you write about and that I, I, this is all about discovery, but you know, your, your early, your 20s and 30s were really you know, incredible times of discovery. I mean. You drove three and a half weeks across the Sahara Desert to be with the Dogon people who you studied. And one of the things you, you discovered with them, you started to see, was ritual. Ritual is something that human beings need. Uh, and that was also something that you hadn't learned in this culture, mm. in American culture. Um, would you say something about that? You know, um, I ended up at Columbia University uh, doing this cross-cultural work and then went to Paris and worked in the Musée de l'Homme and then on to Africa and did this... Uh, oh, my poor parents, actually. I feel... <laughs> <laughs> I would hate to have been a parent of someone like me. <laughs> so, you know, driving across the Sahara Desert um, uh, into Mali and putting my VW bus on a barge, uh, going down the Niger River, ending up in Mopti, and then driving into Bandiagara, where the Dogon lived. And I, I went there because um, a very renowned anthropologist who was deceased uh, when I got to Paris, Marcel Gouriol, but his student, Germain Dietrelin, had studied the Dogon for many years. And Griol had missed this opportunity, but Dieterlin, his student, had not. And that was to observe a rite of passage that happens once every 53 years really? that goes over a seven-year period. And he had collected a huge amount of information about this Krista, um, but had died before he could witness it. But Dieterlin hadn't, and she suggested I go. And so, indeed, I went. And it was, um, again, one of these moments where you wake up to what isn't in your own world. And what I saw was it not just an individual, like a, a, 12, a, a pubescent child, a boy or girl, going through a rite of passage, but what I saw was an entire society, an entire culture, going through a rite of passage where they died and were reborn on the level of metaphor, but you know, deep physical enactment. 
And I remember sitting in the Bandiagara cliffs watching this uh, extraordinary ceremony where the women who had uh, been alive in a previous Sigi, it's called Sigi, um, led the uh, procession where women were often, you know, kind of in the back. But these old women with their dry dugs hanging down and just powerful and proud, who were obviously, you know, in their 60s or 70s or 80s. And this is a very tough world. And I just remember them pushing uh, in this red gold sand out in front of the gaggle in, as the ceremony uh, unfolded. And I watched this. Uh, it went on for you know, a long time. And it actually transpires in different villages. It goes over a seven-year period. But um, I watched it, and I had this, you know, it was like another aha. And I realized, as I was sort of sitting there, crouched in this uh, crevice of a cliff, watching this transpire, what in my world, what in my country allows us to mature? And then I reflected, and I said, wars do. And then I said, but of what benefit are these wars in terms of, you know, who really benefits in a certain way besides the industrial arms complex? Um, sorry if I've offended anyone. Um, and I saw when a baby is born, usually no real rite of passage that sacralizes an individual's life. When an individual encounters their puberty, where our identity changes in a really extraordinary way, again, there's nothing to mark that change in the lives of most of our young people. Marriage is where we do mark change, but it's, it's done often in a way where um, the whole village isn't there in a it's sense. It's still very individualistic, the way we create that ritual. It is. You know, I, I was thinking, in terms of war, I've talked to chaplains working with veterans coming back now, and, and they're actually trying to recover rituals because they say when soldiers came back from war, there used to be rituals of re-entry. Exactly. And, and, you know, we're now learning the effects of dropping people back into a life which is another, a world away from where they've been. But it wasn't just them, it was everybody who participated in that. And it, you know, it's not just, I think that it's not just returning vets. I mean, if we just segue over into that situation, you know, entire communities, families are deeply affected by the change in those people who return from wars. Mm -hmm. But you know, now it's, it's very complicated in our world. So I became very interested in the effects of rites of passage on how we actually mature ourselves mm -hmm. and how we integrate into the various life phases or into the transitions through loss, through death, through geographical change, moving from one place to another and so forth. I mean, here's, here's something else you said about being there um, with the Dogon people. Um, he said, over the days, watching from the shade of sandstone and cliff crevices, I was overwhelmed with the sense of history that was not bound by time. Mm. And, yeah, that's another thing. We experience time as such a bully, following us around all day. <laughs> and that, I guess, is another thing that rituals do for us. They release us from that 
trap of a sense of time as small and locked. Well, just imagine um, a ritual process for the whole culture that goes on over seven years. You know, we're such, a, as you said, a time-driven, time-bullied culture. But also what ritual does is it invokes in us a sense of timelessness. It drops us into the past, it brings up the present, also projects into the future, but it is also deeper than chronological time. And that's, you know, the experience, the direct experience I had in um, being with the Dogon, that uh, time disappeared when the sacred was unfolding in that culture. Hmm. So I think one of the things you've, um, you've brought to being with dying is, is also that a kind of, you talked about ritual in service to the dying. I know, um, which also brings in the sacred, but also the normalcy somehow. I mean, the interview, we, we just decided up here we don't want to talk about dying too much because there's so many other things to talk about that, that Joan is doing. But I want to say, when I did that program with you years ago, which everybody can listen to online, um, <clears throat> one of the things that was so helpful for people, I heard this again and again, was you... You described how, you know, pain is something that is very, that we are afraid of and that is very hard, but that dying, in fact, is not hard, that our bodies know how to do it. We know how to do it. And that um, was such a release for people who, you know, hadn't been there when their loved ones died. Um, For so many reasons, that was a comfort. Could Mm. you talk a little bit about that? That was a surprise to people. Well, I... Uh, you know, tangential to that, but leading into it, um, I feel that it is really important for us to both normalize and to sacralize the experience of dying. Right, both at the same time. At the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just remembered this line from Woody Allen. He said, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and I recently uh, returned from uh, working in Japan a, a couple of weeks ago um, around the issue of palliative care. And what completely uh, concerned me in that setting was that um, the relative norm for the treatment of dying individuals as a person is moving into active dying is palliative sedation. Put them asleep. And um, I think that that reduces um, many options for individuals. And that sense of being put to sleep um, also precedes the active dying phase. Uh, with, uh, in, in relation to often the patient is not told they're dying. So the kinds of experiences that um, our patients in the West have in relation to reconciliation with family members, the ability and moment to express love and gratitude, forgiveness, forgiveness of others, forgiveness of ourselves. Um, the sense of appreciation that can be reflected back by family members for a life that's been lived, sometimes not entirely worthily, but well, in many ways. And you're saying 
I remember when we talked before, you, you talk about death in many cultures is seen as an opportunity, right? That, that it's, it's a moment of opportunity for all the other things it is. Um, whereas even in Western medicine, until very recently, I think, we've treated death as a failure of medicine, of the body, and a defeat. And, you know, the spiritualization or the potential within the dying process to um, uh, refine one's priorities, to uh, enter into relationality that um, has been turned away from, and also to find meaning. To make meaning of one's life is really extraordinary. And over the years, I began this work in 1970 at the University of Miami School of Medicine, where I was a medical anthropologist. And uh, so it's been, you know, what, 40 some odd, year, odd years. <laughs> um, every, I mean, we're all, we're all headed down that road. And right now, I feel that it's a time for us to actually transform the culture of medicine and to create a context where we reintroduce spirituality, reintroduce meaning um, back into the medical journey. Because as medicine has unfolded in the West, it's become a kind of technological miracle, but actually an existential nightmare. Mm. So um, that's, you know, we have many missions in life. And we talk about uh, inspire, commit, and act. Uh, that's one of the areas that I'm very committed to, of how do we address the ills in our miraculous medical culture to um, introduce or reintroduce it to meaning. So one of the interesting ways that you and others are coming at actually both spirituality and science uh, and technology from a different direction is, um, is reflected in some work you did at the Library of Congress in the recent years, which is really interesting. So I thought even just the title of the, uh, kind of the talk you gave uh, about some of that research, um, I want to take this apart and, 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 and in that go into this. So Inside Compassion edge states, contemplative interventions, neuroscience. <laughs> oh, well. Okay, so <laughs> let's start with edge states. What are, what are edge states? So edge states are states where the individual's identity is challenged. And they would include, for example, things like pathological altruism. Altruism, you know, <laughs> you where that, yeah. um, we harm ourselves physically or mentally when we engage in care of others. Or vital exhaustion. Is that another way to say the stress of caregiving? Well, yes, but, you know, caregiving can be reappraised as a path and as a great opportunity. And in fact, there are some studies that um, show that caregiving can enhance our resilience, not deplete us. There are other studies that show the opposite. But I think that uh, we are going to have to really reinvent or reappraise the, the path of caregiving. I mean, because also on this subject of dying, I mean, the fact is we also live longer and die more slowly. 
And, and the other side of that is we create this culture in which many of us will be caregivers, you know, not only perhaps for children, but for parents. And it's true. So, and I, yeah. I just had you know, a little back injury and have been the recipient of care, which I have to say as a caregiver is really a hard thing to do. <laughs> you know, when the tables are turned, um, it's, it's difficult. But you know, specifically around this issue of pathological altruism, this actually affects many women whose identities are actually um, related to the act of giving care and who become very um, uh, self-harming in engaging in care in a way that causes harm to, to their own lives. So, and this is the work of Michael McGrath. So this is one of the edge states. And mm -hmm. it, you know, another edge state is what is commonly called burnout or vital exhaustion. And it's when, you know, a caregiver or someone at a university who's a teacher or, or wherever um, is not able to actually establish correct agreements and boundaries with the institution for whom they're working. And as a result of that, um, become completely depleted. And I don't know anyone like that. No. <laughs> Not common at all. No. And, and another one is uh, secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. And that is, you know, just being exposed to people who are suffering. Say, uh, you know, you're a person who works in the end-of-life care field or you're a person who uh, is a chaplain in the military where you're hearing these terrible stories of, of you know, pain and suffering and violence and abuse, and it begins to get you. And so you suffer these effects vicariously that are similar to what people suffer when they come back from the war. And you know, what I was thinking as I was reading this is it, it touches on Something, I think that's something that's happening as to even also to us as citizens in a, in a, to, to a different degree. It's come up here at Chautauqua this week. Um, yesterday, Father Greg Boyle was here. He spent his life working with kids who are in gangs, kids who've had the most horrendous things happen to them. I mean, you work with people who are dying, who are dying. Um, we're all so... You, you, you said at the beginning you suspect that you're in a room full of people who are compassionate. and The compassionate people are overwhelmed now with the deluge of terrible news yeah. about what's happening to the environment, about you know, the mess of our political life, where most of us, I think, feel unrepresented. Um, we... The pictures are too present and too vivid. That you know, the news cycle is too relentless. Um, I see pictures of children in faraway places that wreck me for a day. Yeah. Right. So, um, the question that's out, that's in this room, and I think is out there in the world and in this country right now is, you know, how do we find the courage, and I, I how do we heal enough? How do we be present to that by not, and not be overwhelmed by it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is one of the reasons why I identified these edge states, because when you realize, and, and the issue that you were bringing up, for example, about violence toward children, um, whether subtle or direct, and also that we are subjected to these images through our media uh, bombarded, um, uh, is, I think, a more accurate statement 
So we enter into what we would call a state of moral distress and futility. And the moral distress um, is something that where we see that something else needs to happen. Children need to be protected. Uh, women uh, in the Congo uh, need not to, we have to stop rape and violence toward women in the Congo. And we feel this profound moral conflict, and yet we can't do anything about it. And we enter into a, a state either of moral outrage, or we start um, into, we go into states of avoidance where through addictive behaviors where we just, you know, we just don't want to deal with it. Or we just go into another state of withdrawal, kind of numbness. Tune or out, right. Fr free into freeze. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this world um, that is hooked up uh, in the media right now, uh, that's, you know, a good part of the globe, is going numb. Um, and I don't really agree, Krista, with the term compassion fatigue. I think what we're seeing actually is not compassion fatigue, but um, empathic distress, where there's a resonance and where we're not a actually able to stabilize, where there's affective resonance, but we're not able to stabilize ourselves when we're exposed to this kind of suffering. And as a result of that, we go into moral distress or behaviors of avoidance, or even extreme behaviors of avoidance, numbing. You know, the three fear states that Walter Cannon and Anselya uh, identified. So this is a, a really, I mean, for example, you know, I, I drove in here last night, and um, uh, this is a refuge. The Chautauqua Institution is a refuge. It's a place where one feels safe. You know, I saw kids on bicycles. Kids in very few neighborhoods in the world are safe to ride their bicycles, just about like I was when I was a kid. Totally, no problem, or mostly no problem. And um, there's a sense of refuge here or safety, and we enjoy the privilege of that, and so our nervous system begins to actually downregulate. And um, when we are more stabilized, then we can face the world with more buoyancy. We have more resilience, you know, we've got more capacity to actually address these very profound social and environmental issues. Mm -hmm. So that's why I call these things edge states, because they really call us to our edge. And then do you propose antidotes? I mean, is contemplative intervention a way to talk about what we do? Well, I think there are many antidotes, actually. Um, I think a, a setting like this, which is so uh, physically beautiful and psychosocially safe, is important. I think that there are houses of worship in uh, many denominations here, so people can go and touch into the stillness and as well into the inspiration. Um, for me, the path of meditation has been critical because I'm a very passionate person. Mm -hmm. And I have learned to actually um, uh, downregulate and to become, in a way, more sensitive uh, without being hyper-aroused, which would cause me to withdraw. And so working, for example, in my own uh, experience with meditation, of training the mind so that I'm sensitive to a place where I'm at my edge and I can actually withdraw, but not completely, in order to ground myself. Or I can work that edge skillfully. These are pieces of self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
I remember talking once to Ingrid Yort, who's been a student in the Burmese, and a practitioner of the Burmese Buddhist tradition. And she talked about a teacher of hers who'd also been a teacher to Aung San Suu Kyi, who talked about how the great virtues have near enemies. Do you yes. know this teaching? Oh, yeah. And that a near enemy to compassion is sorrow. And that's that sorrow, that's, that, that's me getting wrecked by the picture of the child in the newspaper so that I can't actually help them. Exactly. And the near enemies are, are um, uh, very subtle. You, uh, you, they're pity, right. they're consolation. Um, well, and sorrow feels like the appropriate reaction. Exactly. But um, compa- the reason why I've objected, Krista, to this term compassion fatigue, because compassion... Um, is not in that uh, context of pity, for example. Um, but compassion can also feel, have a taste of sorrow in it. But it has many more features, which uh, you're, you're aware of since you read my paper on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, but everybody here hasn't read it. Okay, and then the other absolutely <laughs> fascinating thing that comes into the discussion of compassion these days, and, and lots of virtues, is neuroscience. Right. Um, this work of Richard Davidson, who some of you may have heard of, he's at the University of Wisconsin. He started studying the brains of meditating Tibetan Buddhist monks. He got a fax from the Dalai Lama 30 years ago. I, I'd love to think of, you know, today would he send a text? <laughs> but he got a fax. And, uh, and they, he started studying the brains of people who they, they, they talk about sometimes Olympic meditators, people who'd meditated 30, 40, 50,000 hours to see if this spiritual practice actually had an effect on the brain. And they've learned many fascinating things. Um, one of them that has actually infiltrated the rest of neuroscience is the idea of neuroplasticity. I think this is one of the most exciting discoveries of mm-hmm. our time, that our brains change across the lifespan. They don't stop growing when we're 12 or 18 or 25. Um, and they're trainable. They're, and they're, yeah, and that's the good, the, the, the good news is You they don't can have change. to wait to get old to be wise. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you have to train. Yeah. You have to practice. Like mm-hmm. if you want to play the piano, you have to practice. And I think a lot of us practice our negativity. Right. And we practice our despair, we practice our futility, we practice our cynicism and skepticism. And um, this is uh, a powerful message that's coming out of the neuroscience world that uh, you can change your mind by training your brain. Very interesting. So tell me specifically how that that new research and what's happening in neuroscience has flowed into all these things you've been working on talking about for decades. Well, you know, I think the theme of compassion has been important in Western culture, and it certainly is important in Eastern culture, but it's a kind of fuzzy word. And um, when Antoine Lutz and Ritchie and others have been, uh, you know, finding out about, you know, certain structures of the brain lighting up, certain areas of the brain lighting up when people are in states of compassion. Also, here's a very interesting one, that these, you know, 10,000 plus hour meditators, um, Tibetan adepts, uh, they feel acutely, uh, more acutely, an experience of another of uh, suffering, but also they let go of it much more quickly. Mm. So this is quite, it's not like uh, meditators are in this state of kind of numb equanimity. In fact, um, they feel the 
the deep press of suffering, but it's a much briefer impact on the neural system than the average individual. And that briefer impact means they let go of it much more quickly. And then what they're actively practicing is that positive, those positive uh, compassion and actions. That's right. And another has to do with the production of gamma, which you, know, you can't necessarily produce intentionally, but which is a brain wave at about 40 hertz, which is highly integrative. It sweeps the whole brain. And again, these Tibetan meditators, this has to do with neural synchrony. These t Tibetan meditators could you know, go into these states of compassion in relation to seeing images or hearing sounds related to distress. And then gamma would arise, which would hook up the whole brain. And also, you know, immune function. There are many different studies happening uh, that have happened in the past two decades, but particularly in the past couple of years, that suggest that compassion is really good for you. <laughs> so let's do it. <laughs> well, and that it's good for you, and it can be that that we can become more compassionate and more, more powerfully compassionate by doing it, and doing it and doing it and doing it over and over again, and it, that it changes us. And yet, Krista, I want to say that um, in this paper, uh, I, I was so lucky to be given several months at the Library of Congress of uh, just the you know, protected space to study. And um, what I did was I, you know, did a tremendous search of the literature. I looked at my own experience of working with dying people and in the prison system. I read as much neuroscience as I possibly could. Um, I looked at various compassion training protocols. And my contention at the end of this intensive plunge, but also many years of looking at this area, is that you cannot train people in compassion. But what you can do is you can train people in the processes that prime compassion. And that in, the, those processes include attention. You can train individuals to have much more balanced, clear, vivid attention, attention that's able to be sustained over a long period of time. That you can also train individuals in pro-social affect, in positive affect instead of the negative appraisals that you know, many of us engage in. So that even changing your affect then might would ultimately, in fact, make you more substantively compassionate? Exactly. Mm. But it's, it's in all of these features together, including cognitive features, which you know, entail, for example, being very clear that your intention is not about just relieving your personal discomfort when you're in the presence of suffering, but that it's unselfish. You're, you have basically an altruistic or an unselfish uh, intention. And then you have a whole range of features related to insight. For example, one of the features that um, the neuroscientists have discovered is an area of the brain that's associated with the capacity to actually distinguish self from other. In other words, if there's such great resonance when you're in the presence of suffering with the other, you go into empathic over-arousal. But when you're able, like if I'm sitting with a prisoner on death row, or I'm sitting with a person suffering from intractable pain, I can feel this resonance. I can sense into um, their suffering but I also have simultaneously this insight, 
it's that person suffering and this is me. Right. I'm not experiencing it in reality. It's true, but it's not, you know, it's, it's one of those things you true. have to learn as a parent to do, right? To, yeah, well, I don't know, because yeah. I'm not that yeah. kind well, of a parent. Well, but I think, I think that's, I know that's something I've, um, I've been aware of, you know, with a teenage daughter, mm. right? That, uh, that she didn't need me to be right inside it with her. But of course, I couldn't help but care. Yeah. So that's much more in the domain of compassion, that capacity. The worst thing you can imagine is having a child in meltdown and you're melting down with yeah, them. Right. And the worst thing you can imagine is, for example, sitting with a dying person who's going through a tremendously difficult experience and then you start to freak out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not, that's not where it wants to go. Um, is there a near enemy to grief? Or grief is not a virtue, is it? Well, it can be. I, I wanted to talk to you about grief because that's a little—it's a related um, experience to both compassion and dying. Um, and you talk very much, which I think is a Buddhist approach to this. You've talked about grief as a burden and a gift. Yes. You know, in the Pali Canon, there are some very powerful stories um, about the monks, who, a few monks who were around the Buddha as he, as he was dying, particularly Ananda, who experienced uh, deep anticipatory grief, or of uh, a, a woman who became a nun in the Buddha's community, um, Kisa Gotami, whose uh, little boy had died, and she had held this child in her arms, and she kept going around from house to house asking for help, um, everyone said, well, your son is dead. And she refused to face it. And one old man said, go um, down and there's this guy talking, you know, down there in the grove somewhere. I think he can help you. And so uh, Kisugutami took the body of her son and walked into the grove and was grieving, grieving. And uh, the Buddha came over to her and said, well, now, um, how can I help you? And she said, my son, we need some medicine for him. He's terribly ill. And the Buddha said, go back to your village, and um, I want you to collect mustard seeds from those households which have not been touched by death. And so she did that. She went to the first household and said, "Um, have you been touched by death? Oh, Kisugotami, you don't recall. My mother just died. And household after household, it was the same. And she then had this deep insight about the truth of impermanence and uh, brought her son to the burning ghats, to, to uh, cremation. You know, from my point of view, um, the experience of grief is profoundly humanizing. And that um, we need to uh, create uh, a, a, the conditions where um, we are uh, supported to grieve. And where we're not uh, told, why don't you just get over it? Or it's time. Or such as that. Um, that uh, we, in our lives, experience one loss after another. And it can be loss of a breast, 
loss of a loved one, a child going into adulthood, which is a way of loss for many parents, loss of identity, loss of capacity. Um, my own you know, experience of aging is there are capacities I had 10 years ago I no longer have. And I have to reflect upon those losses. And of course, the loss that all of us will face in, in anticipation of death. And it is something that brings great depth and meaning into our lives and also helps us to um, articulate internally um, our priorities. What is really important for us? So um, for me, as a, a, a human being and not identified as a Buddhist or a woman or a Western person, but as a simple human being, um, I value the experience of grief. I think it is, uh, I think elephants grieve. <laughs> we know they do. I think cetaceans do. grieve. Yeah. And I think that we need to create, as I said, the conditions where um, the value of grief is acknowledged and supported within our own culture. But, you know, you write about it, um, you said grief, grief can be seen as a natural human process giving rise to one's basic humanity, which you've just, just described, yet it can also be a potential trap, a no exit, a source of chronic suffering. Do we need to be able to hold it properly in order to let it go or to live with it gracefully? Is that what you're saying? You know, again, this is coming back to the value of a contemplative practice within any tradition or non-tradition, is that when you are in a state of deep internal stillness, you see the truth of change, the truth of impermanence that's constantly in flow, moment by moment. And so that becomes a, a kind of insight that liberates you from the uh, uh, futility of the kind of grief that disallows our own humanity to emerge. Mm. Um, why don't, if, if people have questions or comments, let's, uh, you can come up to the microphones now. I'm going to do my radio thing. Um, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today in the Hall of Philosophy at the Chautauqua Institution in New York. I'm with Zen teacher and anthropologist Joan Halifax. So we have a couple of microphones. Yeah. I was really struck by what you were saying about compassion fatigue. Um, in my younger days, I was uh, a social worker in domestic violence shelters. I did a lot of leftist political work. Um, and at a certain point, realized that I was surrounded by people who were dedicating their life to no, to fighting against something. And my husband and I had decided to get married. and we sat down and said, what's our yes? How are we gonna commit to living yes on a daily basis? Because if we stay here mm -hmm. and do this, we will spend our whole life just fighting and saying no. And, and I wonder sometimes if part of 
what people refer to as compassion fatigue is the unwillingness or perhaps fear of doing the hard daily personal work to pay attention and to be mindful in one's intimate relationships and in one's neighborhood and in one's community because that's constant. That never ends. You can't really numb out to that because it's always in your face. But if all you're thinking about is, I need to do something about that thing out there, that thing that I see on that television, the thing that I read in the newspaper, instead right. of what's happening in this house? What's happening right here in my relationship with my spouse or my child? And why don't I start there? And once that sort of intention and mindfulness becomes almost instinctual, then the tendency to sort of fall into that empathic pit where you can't feel like you can't get out in response to what's going on in the world lessens because you're building up a capacity to hold complexity. I'm wondering what you think about that. So that, uh, that, that was a question that had the whole answer in it. <laughs> it well, was she's, she's a redhead, you see. Yeah. <laughs> that was beautiful. What's your name? Asha. Asha, thank you. We agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is, you know, first of all, there's the recognition. Then there was the intention, the commitment. And then there was the action then you made it real in your everyday life. And that's where the rubber meets the road, exactly, in our everyday lives. So thank you. Yes. Hi. Um, I just want to share something with you um, that I find you might find interesting. I have a brother who's a therapist, works down in Virginia, and he has been a strong uh, advocate of meditation for many years and, and learned much of his techniques through John Kabat-Zinn, um, who is a very big fan. And right now he's working with NASA in training them in meditation practices to reduce stress. Um, so it is nice to know that our federal government is spending money in, in teaching people to use <laughs> meditation. Um, and, and hopefully that will have a benefit um, down the way for all of us. I was very touched by um, your, um, about moral distress. And, and I have a question about that. And what I wanted to know is what would you say to parents who don't provide their children with any form of moral refuge, uh, whether it's faith-based or meditation practices or whatever, and what are the consequences of that? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think so much rests now uh, in our educational system. And I, you know, I'm glad that um, People in NASA are getting resilience training, but I would like to see our educators get the same. Hmm. I, I've talked and to our parents. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I've talked to people recently about the fact that it's quite a new thing in this generation that we have to kind of make this up, right? We we have to individually. Right, so that the contrast would be, and a lot of people, and Chautauqua was a traditional institution, just a generation or two ago, people grew up in 
not just the same tradition their parents and grandparents had been part of, but maybe the same church and synagogue. There may have been all kinds of problems with that, but there was this structure that was given. And now people have to come up with it out of nothing, and they often don't live near communities of family or friends. So it's a it's, and it's hard. That's hard. I mean, just to name the fact that that's very challenging. So people read books and listen to people like you. Well, and listen to people like you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, when people found out that we were having a conversation, I received, you know, a tremendous number of emails and uh, expressions of joy that your work is out there in the media and is reaching people all over the world. Oh, thank you. So, um, thank you. <laughs> yes, I was interested as you talked about grief. Um, in 2013, the American Psychiatric Association is going to be developing the next diagnostic statistical manual of mental uh, disorders, and there had been discussion about adding grief as um, uh, a pathological process mm. um, because it looks so much like depression. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that, and um, um, just to reflect on that a little bit. You know, um, Howard Gardner has talked about learning styles. And uh, as a result of his work and the work of other educators, um, we recognize that kids learn in different ways. And I just, um, I don't want to disavow the importance of diagnostic categories, but to have um, something that is so profound in our human experience as grief to be put into a diagnostic category, uh, I, I find it deeply concerning. I know it makes diagnosticians feel more secure, um, but it doesn't expand the horizon and also the depth of our human experience. Just as a quick comment from that, once you make it a diagnostic code, it can be something that can be charged, but maybe I'm too much of a cynic. I, uh, excuse but, me. <laughs> um, it seems, at least in the great literature, as we move from the age of romanticism to the age of reason and um, rationality, that the concept of death changed greatly. And I'm wondering how much of that, if you done any research, there, there really was a concept before, let's say, the 1800s that death did bring a better place to folks, and how that changed the way people actually approached life without that fear of death. You know, I think with the secularization of our world, um, that uh, the notion of death, for example, in the Eastern world that I've been trained in, um, as the greatest opportunity for liberation, or in the Christian world, as um, the path to go home, to heaven, to God, to return, um, which was certainly part of the experience of the woman who took care of me as a child, for example. But with this uh, uh, massive secularization that we're experiencing now, and skepticism, um, it has uh, separated us from our own spirituality. 
And I'm not, you know, I'm not a very sectarian anything, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, I do Buddhist practices and so on and so forth, but I'm not a sectarian Buddhists, Buddhist. And um, what I am, though, is someone who wants to help people see inside. And there are many paths to that. Our churches provide a path. Our synagogues provide a path. Um, our great literature and art provides a path. But mostly, I believe that we've turned our vision uh, to being so uh, superficial and outward. And um, there's, there's a potential for a new kind of enlightenment in our time. And that is, I think, um, a yearning that many of us experience as um, we see the world distancing itself from its own heart. So I don't feel hopeless or futile. I'm very interested. I'm so glad I lived this long. Um, because my superficial uh, study of enlightenment, for example, in the Western world um, leads me to believe that um, we have tremendous potential to realize in, this, in these coming decades. Hmm. I just don't want to say it's a downhill slope, in other <laughs> words, <laughs> if you know what I mean. No, I just think um, if you look at complex dynamical systems, we're in a fascinating breakdown. And what we know about <laughs> complex dynamical systems is that living systems, and we're in this robust living system, and we've seen eras. You know, we can look back through history. We're in an era of great breakdown, environmentally and socially and psychologically. And when systems break down, um, the ones who uh, have the resilience to actually repair themselves, they move to a higher order of organization. Mm. And I think that this is characterized by something the complexity theorists call robustness. That um, we can um, anticipate both a time of great robustness, which we're in, with tremendous potential to wake up and take responsibility. And at the same time, um, there's going, we're in a lot of difficulties. And we need um, resilience to make our way through this change. Yes, over here. Uh, would you tell us something about your own meditation practices? Sure. Uh, do you meditate uh, regularly, you know, 20 minutes a day or whatever? I I'm just interested. I'm a meditator. Oh, wonderful. What do you uh, do? It's <laughs> I meditate 20 minutes in the morning. It's sort of a transcendental type meditation. It's not Zen. Well, uh, Zen is actually very close to that. It means dhyana or meditation or concentration. So, you know, um, I think that whether we're doing TM, Transcendental Meditation, or Zen, or uh, Centering Prayer if you're a Christian, or um, repeating the name of God or Allah, um, I think these periods of stopping, you know, pulling our way, ourselves away, from our busyness, from our iPhones, our iPads, our television set, 
uh, even each other, of quieting down and coming to stillness. These are really important. This is like the refresh button, you know, when, <laughs> that you push on your computer. <laughs> you know, you want to refresh. And um, to do it every day uh, is really essential. It's, you know, if, just look at it from the point of view of dentistry. Say you only did one sort of big prayer a year. <laughs> or you went to your dental hygienist, you know, just once a year, and the rest of the time you didn't pray, you didn't meditate, and you didn't brush your teeth. <laughs> your dental hygienist wouldn't be too happy. And well, neither would your own heart. So what's the rhythm of your practice? So I wake up um, before dawn, and um, I, I do sitting meditation in the style of Zen, but by myself. I, I live in a monastery, so we have a structure in the day. And so there's three hours of meditation in that monastery a day. But because I'm the abbot, um, and the old abbot, I've been in there now with this schedule for decades, you know, I have my early morning process, which is um, sitting, remembering really why I'm here, really affirming my intention to serve others and to wake up, and to remember who I really am, which is not just you know, this little identity, but um, I, I am something that is, if you're a Christian, it's, it's kind of a bigger feeling. You know, I am everything. And I'm, I want to be in that sense of connectedness with everything. And when I have that sensibility present in me, which is now, doesn't take me as long as I said, I promise you. Um, it's just, it's like a flash. Mm. Then um, I actually bring to mind a being, a pet, a person, a place that's where there's lots of suffering. So when the Iraq war was ramping up, I would imagine myself as a young Iraqi shoeshine or a pregnant woman in Iraq and what it would be like to be in the streets of Baghdad anticipating war. Or in Afghanistan, I was a woman under a burqa who's wanted an education. Or I would think about women in the Congo or I'd think about a patient that I was working with, or a nurse who was distressed, or a man on death row. I would really bring the truth of suffering vividly into my experience. And I would just dedicate my, and it would be visceral. You know, it wouldn't be just like a cartoon. I would really feel it. And I would dedicate my, I dedicate my meditation, my practice to this situation. And then I enter into a period, like your TM, but a little different, of then embodiment, and then um, concentrating the mind. And then when the whole field of my heart and mind is very uh, calm and open and concentrated, it opens up into this deeply reflective state. And then at the end, usually it's about an hour long, but it, you know, it's not like I have an alarm or anything. It's just, it just it flows because I'm not in the structure of being with others where I have to you know, tell them, you're done now. Um, at the end of that practice, then, I dedicate whatever good that has arisen for me in that experience to the well-being of others. Yeah, so it's like that. 
So we have three more questions here. Uh, thank you for, for answering the call to come to Chautauqua, Joan. It's a privilege. Thank you. Um, when, when Terry Schiavo was dying, I became, um, I ordered 20 copies of Five Wishes and gave them to everyone I know, which, if you don't know, is a, a, an advanced directive uh, medical power of attorney saying how, how basically you want to die and how you want to be treated. Um, and uh, I did it, uh, of course, for myself and, and my husband, and it came in, it came in handy uh, as he was dying. Um, but I, I work with a, um, as a volunteer, a board member of an organization that is um, in Washington, D.C., that works with, with homeless individuals, mm -hmm. formerly homeless individuals. And we've started, a, I guess you could call it a ministry, um, around end-of-life issues with them. And I've run into a, a practical problem that you might, I'm hoping you can help me with, which is when someone is um, mentally ill or s struggling with mental illness and homelessness has, has uh, typically cut off bonds with their family, uh, and they are looking for someone to designate as their medical power of attorney. They're, you know, they might be paranoid, they might be delusional, but they might know that they would like to do this, uh, these advanced directives. You know, we're, we're wondering how we're going to help them with that. Um, well, what an incredible project. It is, I mean, yeah. Total service. I, I don't have anything that I can tell you, but I would ask you, when you learn from the people with whom you work, um, how to create that communication and also to come up with uh, the pathway through this, let me know. Yeah, I, <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's um, you know, really about, you know, my willingness and other volunteer and board members' willingness to, to step over that line of, of them and other and say, you know, I, I'm willing to, you know, to be your, to have your power of attorney in this. Mm -hmm. And that's a terrifying prospect. But, to, you know, um, if we do not honor the integrity of those individuals who our society has not been able to take care of and who have opted out of our society or been marginalized into the underworld of our society. I mean, your return to this underground world is real compassion. I thank you. Over here. Okay, so you kind of discussed this question in an earlier question that was asked to you. I'm Muslim, so I pray five times a day. Well, it's obligatory that we have to pray five times a day, and the idea behind the prayer is that it connects you with the divine on a day-to-day -day basis. So, and that's supposed to transcend into your day-to-day -day life. Um, my question to you is you mentioned almost like tradition or uh, I forget the, the phrase that you used, but what is the order of your day? Is there a specific mm -hmm. process you go by on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. or it's just? Thank you. Yeah, I think the Muslim world is very blessed with um, this kind of order. And I also know that living in a monastery, um, we have a similar right. uh -huh. kind of structure. So, you know, there's the early morning before first light meditation. Then there's the early morning, the 7 a.m. meditation, then the 12.20 meditation. 
and then the 5.30 meditation, and then the late evening meditation, which is done by each individual. Okay. So it's not so dissimilar, I think. Right. Because um, I think that structure is very helpful. What is the way to bring the, the, the message or the lesson or the, the peace you get from the meditation out into your day-to-day -day life? Is there, like, what is the philosophical underpinning of that? That's... So in um, Japanese, we call it mujodo no taigen. Mm -hmm. And this means actualizing the way in your everyday life. And a questioner earlier, um, actually a couple of people, talked about uh, realizing mindfulness um, throughout all of the aspects of your life. I think mindfulness is a prayerful attention. Um, that we can't be just, if, you know, I was born and raised in a Christian context, so I often use this analogy. Uh, you know, we just can't be Sunday-type people. Right. We have, you know, we have to actually... Friday-type people for us. Right, right. Right. What do you call it? Friday night? Friday-type Friday type people. Okay, Friday-type yes. people. There's the Friday people, the Saturday people, yes, the right. Sunday people. But we want to be all-day people. Yeah. All day throughout. And I think, you know, you carry it. Um, it's in the tradition that I practice. And I, I know that Father Thomas Keating in Christianity carries that sensibility of actualizing the way in our everyday life, how the food is prepared, um, how we are in relationship with each other, being mindful of actually, you know, our patterns of consumption. You know, you turn the water on and you really turn it off. How much shopping do we really need to do? And so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So there's the ethical and the practical dimension, and then there's the transcendent or sacred dimension. Mm. Thank you so much for your question. Okay, one last question, and then we're going to finish. I remember I get to I do the radio close up here, so no applause until I'm finished. Okay, yes. Okay, this question might ring as a little redundant, speaking of meditation. Um, to many, I feel like it comes to mind a Buddhist meditating under a tree for 30 years or something, and speaking of the neurological benefits that it can have, I was wondering if you can recommend to somebody that's not that religious or spiritual, and it's, I feel like spirituality is something that has to come on your own time, and to maybe just start off to get the benefits of meditation, like, does it have to be sitting cross-legged? Does it have to be, like, what's the simplest way that you can do it and still get the benefits? Like, can it be 10 minutes? Can it be 15? Does it have to be 20? And I just was, <laughs> just, I wanted to just have it broken down as a younger member of this world, I would like to get myself my foot in the door, but I'm not ready for the whole like, shebang yet. Okay. An honest question. So, you know, um, our mutual friend Richie Davidson at the Keck Lab has even developed a, uh, an intervention, an internet intervention on compassion that is teeny-weeny where they've seen effects. <laughs> You know, um, the truth is that, I mean, the word meditation, we, in our training program in the end-of-life care field, we actually don't even use the word meditation because it's so freighted. We call it reflective practices or contemplative interventions or, you know, whatever. So I, I feel that what's happened is it's kind of uh, these practices of mental training have also gotten mixed up in the dark side of religion, or the, the more difficult side of religion. And, um, uh, but also, these practices have been secularized 
so that they no longer are hooked into the ethics which gave rise to them. And so what, you know, what I feel is we sort of have to meet somewhere uh, in between. We have to have a view or a strong ethical base at the same time, engage in the techniques that allow us to deepen concentration, to have insight, and to also develop more pro-social capacity. And, um, you know, there are many programs out there. Uh, who, that, you know, the whole sort of range of mindfulness-based stress reduction and John Kabat-Zinn's work, the work that uh, Dory Fontaine, who's in our audience here and an old-time Chautauqua um, family member, um, participant, is doing at UVA, the training that we do of clinicians, where hundreds of clinicians, including I think some 40 of Dory's nurses and doctors, have been through our training program, which is completely secular. So what's happening in, you know, in the West is fascinating in terms of these uh, approaches to training the mind being secularized by the same token. So you can have a five-minute intervention, and it can really produce a nice effect. <laughs> but we also know that dose makes a difference. And um, so... Uh, Try the five, then go to 10, and then 20, then you might find an hour, and then you might want to actually sort of take the plunge. In, but also, be very mindful of what is appropriate for you. Respect your boundaries. See, be sure you're with a qualified person, because I tell you, to stop in this world is to create the conditions where a lot of unusual experiences can rise up. So be very respectful of your situation and proceed with love and with care as well as courage. You know, in that spirit, I wanna, I'd like to ask Joan to read, to, to do a very short meditation with us here. Um, this is something that's published in the end of her book, Being with Dying, Cultivating Compassion and Fearlessness in the Presence of Death. And it's a meditation on encountering grief. I think that the meditation also points back to the fact that, that grief is something ordinary and a part of life and part of our humanity. So let's finish uh, with this. So I would like to invite you to put down whatever might be in your hand And to find a position that's comfortable and also that supports you. And listen to my words. And um, if they are resonant for you, uh, if they are helpful, really let them enter into your experience. And also bring your own experience and your own language to what is being pointed to as we touch into this meditation on grief. And beginning with remembering really why you're here.
and bring your attention to the breath for just a moment. And let the breath sweep your mind. And notice whether it's a deep breath or shallow. And recall for a moment now um, a loss or losses that have really touched you. Or the anticipation of loss. And I'll offer some simple phrases that we can touch into around the truth of grief. May I be open to the pain of grief. Notice whatever comes up, not rejecting it, not clinging to it. May I be open to the sorrow, to the pain of grief. May I find the inner resources to really be present for my sorrow. May I find the inner resources to really be present for my sorrow. Notice any judgment or resistance that arises. It'll pass. May I accept my sadness, knowing that I am not my sadness. May I accept my sadness, knowing that I am not my sadness. And if you've cared for someone and felt like it wasn't always so easy, reflect on this phrase. May I forgive myself for not meeting my loved one's needs.
May I forgive myself for not always being able to meet my loved one's needs. And may I forgive myself for mistakes made and things left undone. So true of all of our life. May I forgive myself for mistakes made and things left undone. May I be open with others and with myself about my experience of loss. May I be open to receive the kindness of others as they support me in this journey of grief. and completing this uh, brief exploration of grief. May I and all beings learn from and transform sorrow. May I and all beings learn from and transform sorrow. Again, noticing whatever is arising for you, whatever thoughts are present, not clinging to them, Whatever you're feeling in your heart, how the body feels, as you consider the possibility that grief can be a profoundly humanizing experience and bring greater depth into our lives.
It's very peaceful in here right now. I don't know if there's ever been a guided meditation in the Hall of Philosophy. But I want to thank Joan Halifax for being here and, yeah, for being here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Krista. Thank you.